This is a Federal News Network podcast. The General Services Administration recently selected 14 information technology projects in which it will invest a windfall. The GSA's Technology Transformation Service received $150 million in extra funding in fiscal 2021 from the American Rescue Plan. Joining me with highlights of the projects here in studio, Technology Transformation Service Director Dave Zvenich. Dave, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks again for having me. And just begin with telling us about the projects in terms of the money. These are not all 14 GSA projects, but money you'll be funneling to the agencies. Tell us how that all works. Sure. As you mentioned, we received about $150 million as part of the American Rescue Plan. And the goal for the American Rescue Plan was to respond to the pandemic and really think about ways that we can improve security and sort of the overall delivery of public services. And so what we've invested in so far are the first tranche of funding, really, to really think about how we can improve digital services delivery for the public. And as you mentioned, we have awarded 14 projects so far, everything from reimagining USA.gov to helping with the emergency rental assistance program to child tax credit and beyond. Um, And really trying to invest in things that are going to have a high impact for the public and, like I said, respond to the pandemic. And how does this money relate or correspond to the Technology Modernization Fund dollars? Because a lot of these were already getting some of that money also. This is a different type of fund, but it seems almost like the same purpose. Sure. So the Technology Modernization Fund received about a billion dollars as part of the same American Rescue Plan. And those things are also thinking about modernization. They're also thinking about security. But this Federal Citizen Services Fund, which is the $150 million that we're referring to here, really focused on public-facing digital services, really thinking about the differences, thinking about TMF is to go to shared services, thinking about going to uh, other agencies for modernization. We're really thinking about high-impact public experience, and that's been the nature of the different types of funding. But we certainly work in coordination with TMF and others. So that ties basically into the Biden administration's CX kind of initiative, as opposed to the executive order on cybersecurity, but you must have security as part of this also. That's right. And one of the lessons that I think we really learned throughout the pandemic and before is that ultimately the public doesn't need to really understand the nuances and the intricacies of how government works. They just expect service delivery to happen and expect to happen in a way that makes sense to the public. And what we are trying to do with TTS and working with the White House and others as part of the customer experience push is to really think about how we can improve service delivery in a way that actually makes sense to people as opposed to doing it in a way that you know makes sense to agencies. And you have put these projects for purposes of public consumption into three basic buckets here, recover, rebuild, and reimagine. And let's talk about recovery. What is needing recovery? Sure. So uh, there were a number of programs that came out of the American Rescue Plan, things like the child tax credit, things like the emergency rental assistance program and the like that we really wanted to make sure that we were getting in, helping those agencies and helping make sure that we get services. So it's American recovery, not recovery of disastrous programs. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So the idea is that we're recovering from the pandemic and then we're rebuilding digital services for a future and then also taking the opportunity to really reimagine what digital service delivery can look like. And one of those under reimagine is reimagining the USA.gov as the front door to government. That's what it was originally built to be, I think, maybe as far back as the Clinton administration, if I recall correctly. And GSA ran a series of ads for years impersonating Abraham Lincoln, extolling the virtues of USA.gov. I don't know whether you were around when sure. those ran. Then it was firstgov.govs. And firstgov, yeah. correct. So what's going on with that particular one? Because that's been a project that's been abiding 
but I guess it kind of stales unless you keep refreshing it. Yeah, I draw sort of a line all the way back over 50 years ago to the Consumer Information Center and the Federal Information Centers and the idea that we're trying to provide better services to the public. Again, helping people get stuff done is really the thing. You know, our boss, Administrator Carnahan, talks about making the damn websites work. And that's kind of our point. It's like people expect services to get delivered. And we really think about USA.gov as a place for the public to be able to access public services in a way that's sensible to them. And thinking about having a seamless, simple interface to access these government services is really the goal for the reimagining effort. We're speaking with Dave Zvenich, Deputy Commissioner for the Federal Acquisition Service and Director of the Technology Transformation Service at the GSA. And there's a lot of work to be done. This is coding, essentially, what will be happening. Who is doing that work? Do some of these projects already have contractors? There's 18F, there's U.S. Digital Service, there's no dearth of places to turn for the work. What do you envision? That's right. So it's a whole group of folks that are both federal employees within GSA, federal employees outside of GSA, contractors, the public, and really just focusing on bringing all of the different people to bear with whatever their particular skill set is. You know, there's a term that I like to use. It's a badgeless culture. Um, whether they're contractor or fed, we're all on the same team trying to make sure that we're delivering effectively. And one of the things that I think is really important about the work that we're trying to do is we're trying to think about how we can improve both the equity and access of our programs as well. So it really requires understanding and doing sort of deep public-facing user research, getting to understand how people are actually using these services, getting iterative feedback from them, and improving our services along the way. So it's not just hands-on keyboard. It's everything from product management, design, data science, all the way through, and taking the best from within government and outside of government to deliver. So getting back to USA.gov, can we expect a major overhaul of that? Yes. And in the back end, then, to make it the front door to the government, there's so much linkage that has to occur to other agencies. So you can put a new face on it, but that's only the beginning, right? There's so much deep work in the interconnections. That's right. And that's why it's going to take a whole-of-government approach to make sure that we deliver these services. I like to talk about the idea of having no wrong door. You heard about the federal front door. But it really should be no wrong doors, that the public should be able to come into any agency and be able to get the services that they need. And so we need to be thinking about how we can create a USAGov and sort of the constellation of efforts so that if people come in through the wrong door, they still get the services that they expect. That's something that I think we are poised in trying to work really hard with our partners to deliver. But it is not just a GSA thing. It is really a whole of government effort. And we should say they're not all coding and software design. There's one project here, building a talent pipeline for government technologists. And there's the Presidential Fellows Program, there's 18F. What do you envision happening there, and, and who's the lead agency on that? Sure. So that is the U.S. Digital Core effort. Um, I was actually here talking about that not too long ago. So we put together the U.S. Digital Core, thinking about the next generation of technologists. We recently closed our first application for those technologists, and I believe we had something like over 1,000 applicants, which is really incredible for the first 30 rules. And these are um, for term employment? That's correct. So these are going to be folks who are going to be working on high-impact projects with other agencies. They are new to government and entry-level technologists. So it's really exciting to have that next generation of talent coming into government and thinking about this as part of the really the opportunity to, to have not just what the systems that we need for today, but really thinking about what we need for tomorrow as well. It's almost government as gig employer in some ways. I don't like to think of that. Because my, <laughs> my, my, my expectation is that many of these fellows uh, will continue to stay on and be uh, full-time permanent federal employees. And there's one, I confess, I don't understand the terminology, spurring innovation through 10x investments. Yeah, we have this program called 10X, and uh, 10X is modeled off of a what you would see in the private sector as like a venture capital type fund. Um, it's really thinking about taking a phased approach to innovation. So 10X has spurred programs like Login.gov and the U.S. Web Design System and others. And the idea of 10X is you take an idea, you see if it's good, and 
Uh, oftentimes, you first see if it's bad, um, and then you take it all the way through testing and sort of different phases to see whether or not something can scale. So 10x is an opportunity as we think about reimagining digital services to take speculative, wild ideas from anywhere across the government and see if it might be able to stick and improve service delivery. Now, it's relatively easy to take in money from, say, the American Rescue Plan and decide here's where it goes and distribute it. But then there is the accountability piece that you have to know that the projects are happening, that the milestones are being met. What are the mechanisms built in to track these projects so that there's some closure on it all? Such a great question. And, and actually, I think that's one of the things that we really pride ourselves on within TTS is that we think about these projects not just in terms of, okay, we've got $150 million, let's spend it, but think about how we can get the most return on investment for those dollars. And that's where programs like 10X have really uh, excelled, not only because they have great ideas, but they actually kill a lot of bad ideas. Um, and we find that's true, too, is that you're going to spend some projects that seem like they're great. When you get into it a little bit, you say, mm, that's not going to work, or it's not really returning the types of results that we want, and shut them down. And so when we think about these first 14 projects under the American Rescue Plan, and then also with the 10X program and beyond. The goal is not necessarily for every project to be wildly successful. But we expect to get a few home runs through the effort. And would you say that's an emerging trend in the way government approaches these types of projects is much smaller time horizons and much faster trigger to kill off projects that aren't going right as opposed to, gee, five years and a billion dollars, we've got nothing to show for it, which still happens in this day. That's right. I tend to think that the riskiest projects are the ones that end after many years without actually having tested any of the assumptions at the beginning. And so we really think about how we can be iterative and incremental in terms of testing our assumptions, reducing risk, and getting to better results. Dave Zvenich is Deputy Commissioner for the Federal Acquisition Service and Director of the Technology Transformation Service at the GSA. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? 
my style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, 
um, from C to C-suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.